Dr. Joel Mehta is a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He has written extensively on what it would take to improve American education, with a particular focus on the professionalization of teaching. Joel is the author of several books and publications, including In Search of Deeper Learning, a contemporary study of schools, systems, and nations that are seeking to produce ambitious instruction, which he co-authored with Dr. Sarah Fine. In addition, Dr. Mehta produces a podcast with Rod Allen called Free Range Humans. Without further introduction, I give you Dr. Joel Mehta. All right, I'm here with Joel Mehta. Joel, I would have already done a formal introduction before, but if you could just give a brief introduction, your maybe your little elevator pitch, um, just a brief intro into what you do and, and sort of what your research has looked like. Sure. Um, well, good to be here. Um, so my name is John Mead. I'm a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Um, I'm interested in uh, thinking about education at all its levels. So what better learning might look like for students, like really granularly, like what do good learning experiences look like? And then from there, thinking outwards, like how do we build good schools, systems um, at broader levels that would that would support that? Um, so I spent a lot of time in schools. I spent a lot of time with people at the school and district level who are working on systems to try to support, uh, good things that are going on in schools. Having poked around, I, I know that you did, ha did and have done quite a bit of work on incentives and incentive structures around attracting teachers to the profession, but then, you know, keeping teachers in the profession. That being said, what first attracted you to the profession or even to the idea of getting interested in sort of education or education reform? Because, as you know, there aren't huge incentives to do that. Yeah. Um, well, I think it was kind of in my blood. My uh, dad is a, a professor of theater and my mom is an English teacher. And my mom was also an administrator at the school where I worked growing up. So we just spent a lot of time talking about education, you know, at the dinner table, I would be like, you know, why, why did our teacher do this or that? And, you know, so we would have a lot of those discussions uh, from the beginning. And then after college, I got a PhD in sociology and social policy. I'm kind of interested in any institution that could help um, improve things and just got, you know, most interested in education as the most kind of transformative force for uh, changing people's lives. Um, so I think that's that's kind of my journey. Do you remember what some of the first issues around education uh, were that you started thinking about that you thought needed to be transformed? Um, I mean, yeah, so there are so many issues. I mean, I grew up in Baltimore and uh, Baltimore is very um, unequal uh, city in terms of pretty much everything, you know, uh, funding, access to good teachers um, and lots of other other things. So I think probably when I first got interested in it, I was most interested in it from a, an, an inequality angle. And then as I spent more time in schools, I came to think that even schools serving middle-class and upper-middle-class kids, um, you know, had a ways to go in terms of the kind of work they were doing. And that got me interested in teaching as a profession and what we could do to make teaching, you know, 
um, a more crystallized profession and uh, all those sorts of things. Did you ever sort of switch to focus on one as opposed to the other or were you interested in both simultaneously throughout your career? Yeah, no, I, I've been interested in in both uh, in both all the way through. Um, yeah, it, it uh, I mean, I think they're overlapping, right? Like um, if you it it's hard to take on inequality directly because um, some people are benefiting the people who are on the sort of more favorable side of the fence will fight to sort of hold on to the resources and things that they have accrued. Um, and so I think part of the hope with the sort of idea of moving towards more of a profession is that, um, you know, if, if you, if you go to a doctor in a, in a, you know, in a clinic in a poor part of town and you go to a hospital in a nice part of town, like, you know, you, you the, you probably will get like marginally better treatment in the the nicer part of town, but like, hopefully like basically like the kind of thing that you went in with will be treated roughly the same way. And thus hopefully you would come out roughly the same way. So I sort of th thought I, I had some hopes that moving in a more professionalized direction might also equalize things uh, somewhat. Do you remember what your first, obviously moving the profession of teaching in a more professional direction is like massive undertaking. And probably, as you said earlier, you've probably gotten really granular with, with that topic too. Do you remember what the first hill was in your mind that you thought, okay, this, this will really move the needle making it more of a profession. Um, what, what, what do you mean by first hill? Like what, what would the first step be or. Yeah. Do you remember what your instinct was? I'm like, Oh yeah, that will definitely make this more professional um it's a good question i mean there's you're a you're a you're a teacher and a doctoral candidate and you know i think if you are a teacher the way in which we we treat teachers is um so kind of disrespectful like you know, you'll go to some sort of like professional development and someone who's not a teacher, who's a like consultant of some sort will say like, if you followed this like four part framework, like everything will be wonderful in your classroom. And you know, like this person doesn't know your classroom. They don't know your context. They don't know your kids. They don't know. Um, there may not be the sort of like depth of research and understanding that you might need that would go into that framework. Whereas I feel like in a more professionalized field, you know, there are a lot of tools and strategies, but you've got to match them pretty carefully to the the context and the problem. And so, um, yeah, just I, I kind of feel like the way in which we we do like, quote unquote, like reform in education uh, isn't built around knowledge and expertise, doesn't respect the people who are closest to the work. Um, and so we just have a have a long way to go. I'm not sure if that answered your question, but no, it it does at least in part. Why is that the case? Is it? I think there's probably this feels like a leviathan, like like or a monster with many heads. My mind immediately goes to. I th I don't know if this is still the case, but I think at some point when I was an undergrad, I would hear this figure floating around that that 
the incoming wave of teachers was something like the bottom 35% of the graduating class. Do you think people are fearful to, to entrust that group with reforms? Because it sounded like your lament was that they're not entrusted with that. Do you think that's part of the issue or do you think it's just simple incentives that nobody nobody's really incentivized to to solve this problem? Because one, you know, it's a huge problem and two, the ROI isn't obvious or or direct. I mean, I think. Um, well. OK, so. I think that there are first off. Like, you know, I, I teach at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and so I meet a lot of people that go through elite colleges of various sorts, both ours and people who are coming to graduate degrees from other ones and so forth. And the people who went to the best colleges are not necessarily the best teachers. So um, it it all, you know, there's just a lot of skills that go into teaching. And if you look at university professors, for example, like being really knowledgeable about your content is, you know, necessary, but not sufficient to be a good teacher. So um, I do think that, um, you know, if we think about it historically, as women have had considerably more career options and African-Americans have had more career options, um, you know, a lot of people who in the past would have become teachers now have many other career choices. And so sort of there was like this sort of artificial kind of cap, like I don't know how to put it, but like there were a lot of people who are now in other professions who couldn't do that profession in the past, who in the past had been teachers. And so I do think we've sort of like lost people into other professions, which is, you know, good. People should have more opportunities to do more things. But um, it does it does mean that in the past there was this sort of like bonus group of uh, women and uh, African-American teachers that are now often other professions. Then I also think that um, if we sort of zoom out a little bit, um, the, um, you know, you have to make teaching an attractive uh, profession uh, to be in. And the kind of profession we have, um, students are not supported very well outside of school. We have very high internet, we have very high poverty rates by international standards. Um, and um, teachers are working really hard with, um, high class sizes and in particular teacher load like the number of students teachers see and then the, like the level of respect they receive from the society is is not very high and so in that kind of a world it's really hard to attract bright talented capable people into teaching and then you may be right that like if we can't do that then people are distrustful of the people who are teaching and you know, that leads to kind of increasing regulation from afar. And the more regulated a field is from afar, the less desirable that field is going to be to enter. So, I mean, I think I have one slide which sort of compares, like, say, you know, Canada, for example, which has like a much more uh, selective approach to teaching to the U.S. And like, if you make um, if you make teaching a better profession, you'll have more people who want to go in it. And then you can be more selective in who you accept to become uh, teachers and so on and so forth. So I, I guess in the big picture, I would say we're on sort of a downward spiral with a lot of interacting factors and we want to get onto the other kind of spiral, a kind of upward spiral. Of course, of course. Um, 
your comment on Canada is reminding me I had a conversation with Dr. Richard Ingersoll earlier this year who he his origin story was he taught in Canada and then he taught in the U.S. and he realized that there was this massive discrepancy not only in pay but in the way that he was treated as a teacher in those two different countries and that what what, what did he say about that how is he treated differently I'd have to uh I don't want to misquote him yeah but you know roughly I think he I'm trying to remember exactly what he said. He he did say something, I think, about even the meetings being different or there being an air of professionalism to the meetings. I, again, I can't exactly point to what he said. Obviously, he cited the pay. Um, I think there were smaller class sizes. I also think he referenced having um, higher esteem for some of his colleagues. Um, as far as like how they were selected and trained, that sort of thing. I don't want to misquote him on that. Um, yeah. I'd have to listen. I'd have to listen back. It's a good question. Yeah. No, but I, but I, he, I, he kind of woke up to this discrepancy and, and that really set him on the path of sort of researching like teaching as a profession in the U.S. Mm, interesting. I, I didn't know that. Um, Dan, uh, Dan Lordy, who's like one of the most famous scholars of this kind of stuff from the 70s, I ran into him at a reception at the University of Chicago once. And I said, okay, you you really got interested in teaching and teaching as a profession. Like, you know, why, why did you work on this? And he was like, oh, my mom was a teacher and my sister was a teacher and they were both really bright, capable, intellectual people. And so that's kind of what I thought teaching was. And then I went out and learned how teachers were treated in the the kind of larger system of teaching. And I was just shocked. And so I spent a lot of my time writing about like, you know, what it would take to make teaching more of a profession. So I think uh, I went to a pretty good private school and we had a lot of respect for our teachers and our teachers were uh, on the whole pretty thoughtful uh, people. And so similarly, when I got to see what was happening in the public system at, at large, I, I think probably I had a similar experience to to Dan Lordy in that respect. Returning to an earlier point, what, what would you say to people who, who immediately assumed that a financial incentive would be the first step to making it more, more of a profession? Um, I mean, I do think that I don't think there's any doubt about it. I mean, mm. uh, if you, you know, if you want people to go into education the same way they go into things like law and medicine and so forth, like why, why would they do that if they uh, can get paid so much more in those other, in those other fields? Um, so, I mean, I guess I would like to see a world where, um, you know, as teachers rose in skill and responsibility that at the sort of like top of the pay ladder, you could make like, I don't know, like $150,000 a year or something like that, that would, um, you know, sort of like clearly um, paint you as a, a like well compensated um, professional. Um, we also got to remember that uh, like teaching is our largest profession. There's three and a half million teachers um and those people come in lots of different um they they have a lot of different life circumstances so you know some people like the fact that school ends at 3 and they can be home when their kids are home and uh other people 
you know, they don't have kids or that doesn't matter to them as much. And they might be willing to work uh, longer hours. Some people like having summers off. Some people might be willing to work during the summer and get paid to develop curriculum. Um, we could have, um, we also don't have nearly as many roles as they have in other countries. So in other countries, you could, you know, you can both teach and coach or teach and um, support the development of lessons, which sort of go into a national repository. And we, we don't really do that. So um, if we had, you know, if we had sort of more varied roles, we could sort of fit more different people's preferences. And um, we could take the people who were the sort of like best at it and most serious about it and sort of pay them um, at a salary that might be, you know, close to comparable of what you would get in another in another profession. Hmm. I don't know if you're, are you familiar with Kim Marshall and the work he's doing with the Marshall memo? I do know, I do know Kim Marshall. Yep. He, he mentioned paying very close attention to this merit pay debate. I'm wondering where you fall in that, especially in the world of charter schools, because that would be, I, I don't know if it's 150 K, but I know that they were starting to, there were sort of master teachers that were, way higher they were compensated way higher than i would have imagined being possible prior to a to a compensation scale like that um but apparently it has all sorts of problems that i haven't i haven't really examined them although i can start to imagine them has has your work brushed up against that yeah there's a lot of uh there's a lot of research on merit pay over many 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 years um and it it does not seem to produce greater results for a school as a whole because um because a school is a cooperative interdependent place so like if you are like managing like a sales force which is going to be like you know stereotypically like mostly men and they're like going out to sell and so you like offer you know a bonus to the person who like sells the most like that's a, like a time warm strategy in the sales world. And like, you know, as I understand it, it like works reasonably well. But when you do that within a school, you've got a whole bunch of people who are supposed to be uh, working together. They're mostly women and they are, you know, in the best schools, what you see is a lot of cooperation, a lot of learning, a lot of sharing of ideas from one person to another. A lot of, um, you know, teachers are just very dependent upon one another. If, if, you know, if the fourth grade teacher doesn't get the kid from the third grade in the place where the third grader needs to be, then, um, then it's really hard for them to teach fourth grade. And then similarly, over the course of a day, if a kid is in middle school and has a bunch of periods, if, you know, things don't go well in first period, that's going to carry over to second period. So, um, if kids are congregating in the hallways, like one teacher can't solve that because the kids will just move to a different part of the building. So the teachers have to like develop, um, ways of working together. So there's just lots and lots of research on, uh, good schools, public, private, and charter over the years. And all of that research points to, you need to build, uh, a strong culture. People need to buy into that culture. They need to feel like they're, um, working together to accomplish something. And so when you introduce into that uh, a merit pay system, you essentially are sort of like 
you know, pitting teachers against each other and like either you're going to get a bonus or I'm going to get a bonus and uh, it doesn't work very well. And then the other thing is in the sales example, the metrics are very clear, right? Like you either sell it or you don't. And it either like, so like you bring in a hundred dollars and I bring in $50, like you can get a bonus and I don't get a bonus. And if I bring in $50 next year, maybe you fire me and bring in somebody else. Like, um, and in schools, we don't have those kind of metrics. The only metrics we have are test scores and you can, um, you can improve your test scores by teaching to the things that are going to be on those tests. And so that is, I think the idea behind the test scores was if you taught things well, it would be reflected on the tests, which I'm fine with. But if it, if it shifts from that to trying to boost the test scores, then you're going to get, you know, test taking strategies or, you know, emphasis on these items versus those items, or these kids who are just below the bubble will, you know, give them a lot of extra so that they get over the bubble. So my numbers look better and so on and so on and so on and so on. So um, for a couple of reasons, it just doesn't seem to be a very good fit in the educational arena. And at this point, that's not like a, a theory. There's just like people have studied it over and over and over again. And they like again and again, find find the same things. Sorry, that was a very long answer. No, it's thorough and good, but I'm trying to think about had some emotional reactions to part of it, but I, I don't sure know go for it. Feel free, that. push back. Let's do it. Well, I'm, well, I'm interested in the uh, the idea that it would pit people against each other. If it if it is, obviously it's not. But if it were an infinite pie, and so you didn't necessarily have to worry about you know me getting the bonus and you not getting the bonus, wouldn't that incentivize us to cooperate and share best strategies? Yeah. So, um, uh, I mean, I think if you're going to have incentives, you're better off, uh, doing them in sort of team based ways. So like hmm. if the, if the team goes up, then the pay goes up. And if the team goes down, then the, then the pay goes down, but it's, it's, uh, it's not an infinite pie. Like it's coming out of limited public money. So, um, that is an important, sort of consideration but yeah i hear what you're saying yeah the the team one makes me nervous too because you could imagine a situation where look that we, we're going to go with the team approach because we think it will incentivize cooperation yet you have one person dragging anchor and now suddenly it's this sort of you know it, it seems to incentivize a scapegoating situation yeah it's uh it's possible uh um it's possible. Um, I mean, I think um, so. Having having taught having taught in schools for eight years now, which you know isn't isn't a tremendous amount of time. It is, however, a tremendous amount of gossip, and and sort of uh, chatter. And there is a lot of us versus them, certainly between you know faculty and administration, um, but even between departments. So I could imagine that team thing becoming. Um, you know, anecdotally, having not done the research, I could imagine that becoming also toxic, where at least the merit pay lends itself to the hope that, you know, you could cooperate to share best practices to try to, you know, each person go up. Um, yeah, it just doesn't, uh, I think in the world that you're describing, uh, 
a world where there's a lot of gossip and the culture isn't that great, I I think that experience has shown that if you start rewarding individual people based on performance, what you're, I mean, again, hmm. we don't have a good way of measuring performance, but even if we did, hmm. um, you're just going to create more uh, distrust and individualism. Whereas I think that the, what we know about most strong schools is that like, that's just like not how they work. They like, they are places where there's less gossip, more support, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. You, you pointed to, and I think this is the first time you've pointed to this, not having a, a good way to sort of measure, measure performance. I, I presume performance as a teacher do you think that has anything to do with the fact that there's a tremendous amount of disagreement at, you know at the base of all reforms because we can't really agree on what an 18 year old should be able to do or think say solve etc 100 percent uh um yeah um Incentives are clearest in the business world where the outcomes are profit up or down. Um, and then as you move into the social world, it gets more complicated. And in something like medicine, you still like roughly have some agreement that like, you know, living longer is better, coming out of a surgery, not dead is better, you know, like at a very broad level, there is some agreement. But then when you move to things like education, social work, psychology, like, you know, there's a, there's really wide disagreements. Like are, are schools supposed to, you know, are schools supposed to prepare the next generation to think the way that the previous generation thought? Are they supposed to sort of like reconstruct the world anew? Are they supposed to equip individuals so that they can move up? you know, economically, um, what about issues where we have like massive disagreements politically, like, um, like what should schools do with that? So there, I, I totally agree with you. I think there's a lot of really significant disagreement over what schools should be doing. And that makes the measurement question. I mean, you can't even start on the measurement challenge until you have some agreement about the values and the goals. Now I sort of I believe that and believe that still. But when I talked to Kim Marshall, it was interesting how you know he comes from a public school background and I believe a, has a curriculum writing background. He he gave a tremendous amount of trust to the curriculum. Would would the curriculum be the sort of goalpost, or are you thinking is your thinking that that that's not actually appropriate? Well, so if the test is reflective of the curriculum, then if we do well in the test, aren't aren't we winning? There's a lot of assumptions in there, right? Like I'm yeah, not and saying and you're I making. That. I don't believe not, that. I'm not saying yeah, you're I, making those assumptions. I'm just saying. Um, I mean that assumes. But let's just before we like go deep dive into all the details of that, like at a sure. at a basic level, the curriculum reflects our values, right? So mm -hmm. like what maybe a little less so in you know elementary school like when kids are first learning to read or add subtract and multiply okay at at that level like i think we can all like fairly 
agree that there are certain things that kids should know and be able to do. But as soon as kids get a little older than that, um, any choices you make about what to teach, which if you're drawing on a curriculum, like the curriculum is deciding what to teach. Those are, those are value laden choices. There's just like no way around it. Like you're, you're taking young people's time and you're saying we should spend your time studying this thing as opposed to that thing framed this way as opposed to that way. So that's kind of inevitably uh, values laden, don't you think? Totally. I mean, you said you teach at a, at a Catholic school. What, um, does your school have a, like a, a mission and values and are those sort of things that are in theory or are those things that like people try to live out in practice? They have a mission. They have different kinds of mission statements. So sort of like a great, like what a graduate at graduation should look like. Um, and you could imagine, or at least I can easily imagine that at every school, there are people who actualize that better than others. Um, and certainly there are moments when that's actualized better than others, but yeah, they have a mission statement and we talk all the time about that, about sort of the criteria of those mission statements. Okay. Um, so yeah, so I think in Catholic schools, in private schools, in some charter schools, you know, people try to like part of it is like if you're working in a somewhat market context, you have to differentiate yourself and be clear about like, okay, what what does the school do and not do? And I kind of worry that in just kind of traditional public schools, people don't feel confident about um naming their values because they worry that it'll lead to all the kind of political backlash that we're seeing right now. Um, and so they like sort of like try to pretend that there aren't any values at stake, but that's false. Like there still are lots of values at stake and everybody I think sort of knows that underneath. And so um, um, if you don't make those things apparent, it's hard to know when you have to make a decision, it's hard to know, you know, which way to go and why. Hmm. But mission statements always seem it, it's it always at least to me seems to be in the execution because I think every school I've been at both as a student and as a professional have a mission statement although of course some I can remember and some I can't and even the ones that I can remember some of them you know run the risk of sort of be you know being just sort of platitudes on the wall 100% hundred percent. So everybody has a mission statement, but whether uh, that's not kind of what I mean, I kind of mean, you know, like, like they say at a company, like at, I don't know, I don't know if this is still true, but like at Southwest airlines, for example, like the culture of the company was supposed to be like, we're a sort of like fun, flexible place. And if you thought that that was true, like you should be able to know it when you like met, a like a flight attendant, like it should go through all everyone in the company. Um, I went to a school that was very based on kind of inquiry oriented sort of dialogue centered education. And sometimes I can remember in high school, like new teachers would come and they would start to lecture. And as the students would be like, no, no, like you're, you're doing it wrong. Like that, that's like not how we do it here. And so like, that's what I mean. It's like, a, it's like a, 
it's something that's like held deeply enough that it actually like guides people's actions as opposed to, as you're saying, there's lots of kind of mission statements that are very distanced from what's actually happening on the ground. So it sounds like you would imagine a model where as opposed to a top-down reform that's going to be sort of global, you would imagine bottom-up where schools are deciding what values that they have and how they want to respond to situations. It's almost making me think of teacher-powered schools or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think there could be, like you could imagine a world where in when you were like being trained to be a teacher, you learned a whole bunch of things. Like you learned how kids read, you learned how to teach writing, you learned um, how to um, like understand something about your students' culture and incorporate that into your teaching. Um, and then you went to a kind of particular place and you and the people in that place, like, you know, including the parents and other stakeholders, like helped to sort of develop the vision and the goals and so forth. So there would still be a baseline. Like, I'm not saying that like at every school we should come up with a different way of teaching reading, but I am saying um, it's good for people to own their work. And part of owning their work is like letting them make some choices. And if they make some choices, they'll be more uh, bought into that. That goes for students as well. Um, and if, um, and so, yeah, so I, I sort of imagine a world where there's kind of fairly common training but the common training part of what you're learning through the common training is like how to be flexible like how to understand say like the culture of your of your students and um and then within that there being uh quite a bit of um you know particularity in how different schools choose to like what they choose to center and put forward are there are there places, countries, schools, organizations that you think do, do the, tra- the the teacher training component well? Um, yes. Um, exceptionally well. I mean, I don't know. Exceptionally well is a is a high bar. Um, but I mean, I think you know, there's a book um, by Linda Donnelly Heyman called Powerful Teacher Education, which profiles seven. There's another one called Preparing Teachers for Deeper Learning, which profiles seven more. Um, and I mean, I think the the common characteristics are an emphasis on not just learning theory, but also learning some, like learning both theory and practice in relationship to one another and then learning those things in close proximity to an actual school where you're actually teaching and learning. I mean, I, the the big problem in the U.S. is that there's just a huge, um, you know, you like, I don't know where you learned, but like you learn to teach in a university and then you go into a school and what's happening in the school may or may not match what's happening in the university. And there's just such a huge uh, gap between the two. And in an ideal world, those things would be much more closely uh, integrated. Yeah, I, I actually participated in a fairly unique program called the Alliance for Catholic Education through St. Joe's University, the national um, constituent. I think is is through Notre Dame. Um, mm-hmm. Although I didn't, I didn't want to go. No offense to Mobile, Alabama, and I decided <clears throat> to go home to Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. But we lived together. There were 30 of us in three different houses across the city. We lived together. We went to graduate school together. And then we all taught in different schools. And it, 
and some of us, I think there were three in the school that I was placed in. Um, mm-hmm. So at least in my experience, they they tried to make that about as close as as closely connected as I thought they could. And how was it? Yeah, um, it was an incredible experience, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, it two really difficult years, but it becomes this incubator where you're essentially coming home and, you know, you live with a kindergartner teacher and a third grade teacher and somebody who teaches down the hall and teaches high school science. And um, you find out very quickly that you're all sort of dealing with the same problems, regardless of what age you teach. Yep. Um, and, and so, yeah, it became something of like an incubator. Interesting. Yeah, it was it was. Um, two years I wouldn't want to do again. <laughs> But if you're interested in education, I, I couldn't have imagined being more prepared for it. You know, and, and of course, people say, well, you know, you're sort of thrown into the deep end. They had we had a summer of training and things like that. Um, and of course, you know, you do it one day at a time. It's not like you experience the whole year and, and every day you're coming home and you're sort of revamping your practice. You're redrawing lesson plans. You're asking people for advice. So I found that to be I couldn't actually imagine. And we used to say this at the time. I could not have imagined teaching those first two years not in a community like that. Mm. I would have probably just been staying at the school really late trying to seek out that community. Yep. Yeah. And I feel like that connects to the point I was trying to make up top, which is the sort of the best schools sort of have the feel of that kind of community. And so I kind of think that's what um, the most powerful educational experiences look like and also what the most powerful sort of learning experiences for adults look like. Mm. I'm aware of the time, but maybe to close this out, I, I watched your Ted talk and I particularly enjoyed as I'm sure many others did the part where you sort of compare the classroom experience to, uh, to an extracurricular such as theater. And it was really interesting hearing that you grew up in a house like that. And then also it sounds like a school like that. Um, I'm struck by this list of things that an extracurricular activity does differently than a classroom that a classroom could and should do, which is have purpose, give agency, create community, uh, learn by doing, and then learn through apprenticeship. That also seems like a fantastic model for teacher training. Yeah. And even beyond training to, you know, sort of a department, purpose, agency, community, et cetera. Yeah. I I uh, 100% agree. Maybe for our listeners who didn't see the talk, um, just to sort of like briefly outline the idea. I mean, when my colleague Sarah Fine and I were visiting a lot of high schools, we were looking for kind of deeper, powerful learning. And um, we started with math, science, history, English, et cetera. And we saw a lot of disengaged kids, a lot of worksheets, a lot of kind of passive learning. And then it eventually sort of dawned on us slowly, like, wait a minute, there's other things happening uh, in these schools. And so the difference between like, you know, I remember one day, um, which I think I talked about in that talk, just like following a girl from like two o'clock to four o'clock. And at two o'clock, she was sitting in this really painful uh, English class, sort of like slouched back in her seat, like just really disengaged. And by like 3.30, she was the stage manager of a, of a play. And, you know, she was like walking around, she had a clipboard, she was like getting everybody ready. And it's like, it's the same subject. Like they're studying plays in both of these 
yeah. um, both of these contexts, but just like the difference between, I don't know, they were taking some sort of quiz, like trying to match the quotes to the speakers or something like that in the class. Whereas in the performance, like, I don't know, they'd like watched different uh, performances of the play and they tried, they were trying to think about like, well, it was produced in this context and how do we want to stage it and so forth. It was just so much more sophisticated and they were so much more uh, into it just by changing their like role and relationship to the to the subject. So I'd, I'd love to see more of that in kind of regular classes. Yeah, what I think is amazing about that example that I think flies in the face of traditional classroom knowledge is it does all that without it. The theater experience does all of that without an obvious incentive structure. Like it doesn't it's not like they're getting a grade for that now. Of course, they're incentivized by the performance itself and the quality of the performance, but that's all, you know, intrinsically well and good. And I think actually what classrooms should inspire, should aspire towards as opposed to the sort of, you know, you try really hard on this matching quiz, you know, matching dialogue to speaker, and I'll give you your 10 hard earned points. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that um, no one was asking, like, you know, is this on the test? How many points do I get for it? you know, they're like their friends and family were coming to this show. And so they were trying to do it as well as they could in the time that they had. And so um, I certainly could imagine, I mean, you know, I teach at the university level and our courses end with, you know, most of my students are in education. So they're, you know, developing a plan for a new school or developing a new unit in math or whatever it is. And at the end of the semester, like they have to present whatever they came up with to a panel of like, you know, superintendents and other people in the field who know about those things. And so, yeah, eventually like I read them and I grade them and stuff, but they're much more nervous about the day, the presentation day. Cause like, that's the real day where they see if their work like, you know, lands with real people. Yeah. In both of those cases though, like when I think about scaling this solution, right, there's an obvious selection issue where you have, you know, highly, I'm sure, highly motivated students in your class. And you have the people that choose to do theater, you know, what with the rehearsals, you know, lasting all night, et cetera, you have a certain selection. Whereas when we're talking about general education, you know, you have this problem where it's like, you have to get everybody, you have to get everybody along um, or through or into this material somehow. And that I think poses a really difficult task. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I agree. I think that's that's very fair. That is the difference between the contexts. I think, though, that goes back to the purposes question, though. Like, what do we actually really want people to learn? And what do we think they're going to remember later that will be useful to them, right? So, like, a huge portion of that stuff that you're pushing people through, like, if you gave them a test on it in, like, five years or 10 years, like, they're not going to remember the answers. So, mm. um, if that's the case, then... Um, you know, maybe I would argue it's sort of like the bigger things, like the ability to think critically, the ability to write well, um, the ability to empathize and perspective take. Um, and I, I think there are some I wouldn't like I'm not uh, a relativist when it comes to content. So like in British Columbia, for example, they um, have revised their curriculum to say that there are like five big pieces of knowledge and five big skills that they want students to learn per subject per year. And I feel like that is a is a is a good compromise, right? Like you're 
you can still have your Newtons and your Darwins and your Du Boises and, you know, whatever you think the like the, your Shakespeare, like whatever you think the like the most important things are, you, you can still have space for them, but you can also create a lot of space for um, experimentation and to go deeper on things that people are interested in and, uh, and to give students some choice over uh, what they study beyond those, uh, beyond those sort of most essential things. I agree. And I, I love that idea. Jaw, we're at time. Do you have a website? I know you have several books that are definitely worth checking out. Where can people find those? Uh, sure. Um, so if you're interested in what I've been saying with Kevin, the kind of most relevant book is a book I wrote with Sarah Fine in Search of Deeper Learning, which you could find on uh, Amazon or anywhere else. Um, I talk about these issues with my colleague, Rod Allen, on a podcast called Free Range Humans, which you can find on you know, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your podcasts. And then I'm also on uh, Twitter at Jal underscore Meta, M-E-H-T-A, J-A-L underscore M-E-H-T-A. And so you can find me in any of those places. Joel Meta, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. <laughs>